the top. I'm so happy I could eat you up. I really could. You know what I'd like to do, Mr. Tom. What I dream, if the business stays as good, where I'd really like to go in a year or so. Don't you want to know? Of course. Do you really want to know? Yes, yes, I do, I do. By the sea, Mr. Todd, that's the life I covet. By the sea, Mr. Todd, who I know you'd love it. You and me, Mr. T, we could be alone in a house what we'd almost own down by the sea. Anything you say. Wouldn't that be smashing? With the sea at our gate, we'll have kippered herring. What have swum to a straight from the straits of Bering. Every night in the kip, when we're through our kip, I'll be there slipping off your slippers by the sea With a fishy splashing by the sea Would that be smashing down by the sea Anything you say, anything you say I can see us waking, the breakers breaking, the seagulls squawking While you write a letter, unless we got better to do. Anything you say. Think us now, it'll be underneath our flannel when it's just you and me and the English Channel in a cozy retreat. Kettle neat and tidy, we'll have chums over every Friday by the sea. Anything you say. Don't you love the way? Angela Lansbury there in that recording of By the Sea from Sweeney Todd, taken from the original 1979 Broadway cast recording of the show. A very warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM and to the fourth installment of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway, a special eight-part series dedicated to the great women of musical theatre. 
My name is Adrian Fuchs, your host for the series, in which I take you across the footlights and along the Great White Way, from Broadway to London's West End and via Hollywood, as we celebrate the Broadway babies, broads and belters that have lit up the stage and screen. For those of you who are joining us for the first time this evening, here's a quick recap of what we covered in the first three programs. We kicked off this series with a program on the inimitable and larger-than-life Ethel Merman, the voice of Broadway. This was followed by a program on Mary Martin, who originated such leading roles as Nellie Forbush in South Pacific, the title role in Peter Pan, and Maria in The Sound of Music. And last week, the one and only Elaine Stritch, the first broad of the American theatre. Tonight, the spotlight falls on stage and screen legend Angela Lansbury. Unlike most of the other ladies featured in this series, it is said that Angela Lansbury initially had no dreams of the musical theatre and didn't especially aspire to it. Her career began in film and she appeared in more than 40 movies including Gaslight, the picture of Dorian Gray and the Manchurian Candidate before making it to Broadway in 1957 with the play Hotel Paradiso. But it wasn't until 1964 that she had the opportunity to do her first musical. That show, Anyone Can Whistle, was one of Broadway's most legendary flops, lasting only nine performances, but it gave Lansbury the confidence to pursue a career as a musical performer, and it introduced her to Stephen Sondheim, with whom she would go on to do a further three shows and of whose work she would become a noted interpreter. It was the musical theatre that allowed Angela Lansbury's star to shine brightest. She originated such landmark roles as Mame Dennis in Jerry Herman's Mame and Mrs. Nellie Lovett in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, in addition to her star turns in Gypsy and The King and I. And then, of course, she also won the hearts of millions through her portrayal of mystery novelist and amateur sleuth Jessica Fletcher in the hit television series Murder, She Wrote. Angela Lansbury, therefore, is in short a legend. Going by awards and accolades alone, his status and achievements are arguably unrivaled. Amongst many others, she's the holder of five Tony Awards, six Golden Globes and an honorary Oscar, has been nominated 18 times for an Emmy Award and in 2014 was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Yes, there truly is nothing like a dame, and no other leading lady on Broadway quite as formidable, successful or accomplished, and yet charming and gracious as Angela Lansbury. Before we continue with tonight's program, a reminder that if you missed any of the earlier programs in the series, or would like to listen again to tonight's broadcast, you can do so from my website, www.onandofftherecord.com. Com. That's www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also download a podcast of this program from iTunes. And if you have any feedback, comments or suggestions, please do get in touch via email as I am unfortunately not in the studio to take your calls during the broadcast of this program. My email address is adrian at onandofftherecord.com or feel free to send me a message on the On and Off the Record Facebook page. 
Here then is the story, at least so far, of the remarkable, the versatile, the legendary Angela Lansbury. Angela Bridget Lansbury was born on the 16th of October 1925 in the Regent's Park area of central London. Her mother was Belfast-born Irish actress Moina McGill, who regularly appeared on stage in the West End and who had also starred in several films. Her father, Edgar Lansbury, was a wealthy English timber merchant and politician. When Lansbury was nine years old, her father died from stomach cancer, an event that she later described as the defining moment of her life. Nothing before or since has affected me so deeply, she once noted. It also altered the shape of my life. I lost interest in my schoolwork, although I was never very academic. I became something of a dreamer, lost in my grief. In time, I became much more interested in acting, following the example of my mother. Lansbury became a self-professed movie maniac, visiting the cinema regularly and imagining herself as characters from the silver screen. Keen on playing the piano, she briefly studied music at the Rittman School of Dancing and then in 1940 began studying acting at the Weber Douglas School of Singing and Dramatic Art in Kensington, West London. She first appeared on stage as a lady-in-waiting in the school's production of Maxwell Anderson's Mary of Scotland. Later that year, in 1940, faced with the onset of the Blitz, Lansbury's mother took the bold step of trying her luck in America. She uprooted her children, Angela and twin brothers Edgar and Bruce, to New York and ultimately Los Angeles. In New York, Lansbury gained a scholarship from the American Theatre Wing, allowing her to study at the Lucy Fagan School of Drama and Radio, where she appeared in performances of William Congreve's The Way of the World and Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan. She graduated in March 1942, by which time the family had moved to a flat at 55 Morton Street in Greenwich Village. Here is Lansbury in an interview with John Van Susten and Howard Sherman, recorded for the American Theatre Wing in June 2006. But you came to the U.S. in 1940, and by 1944, you have your first film role. How did that, what was the chronology there of, of your two years in school? So, so it's 1942, you're finishing your schooling here in New York. How did you, how did you get that first film role? Well, I finished my training here in New York. And through one of the students at the school that I was attending, I got to work up an act. He decided that I had a kind of a freaky voice and I could do lots of weird things. And in those days, if you remember, people like Streisand, a little later than me, of course, we would appear at places like the Rubon Bleu and Number 1 Fifth Avenue. And these were kind of little supper club clubs. And there was a man, I wish I could remember his name, but he would let you come in and, and work for a night and you could try out your material. Well, I, I got this uh, situation, so I went and tried out my material. I had this act. And uh, uh, I, all right, so I, I found I was moderately successful, you know, not, nothing great. Anyway, I, I went to Roseland, and I uh, did an audition for agents there to get a job. I needed to work terribly. So this agent in Roseland got me a job, not in the U.S., but in Canada. So I went up to... Uh, to Montreal 
and I worked in a in a nightclub there called the Samovar, which was run by a Russian immigrant. And uh, I did the act, and I was on the bill with sword swallowers and Spanish dancers and and uh, a wonderful uh, Yugoslavian singer called Blanca, and we shared dressing rooms, and it was an extraordinary experience. I was 16. I, pre- I pretended I was 19, and uh, I did my act. Now, and you said you could do weird things with your voice. What sort of weird things? Well, and I, I could sing extremely high, kind uh-huh. of coloratura. So I did. I would do pieces out of... I would do a little bits of uh, Tristan and Isolde, uh, Brunhilde, uh, French chanteurs, English countryside songs, just straight taut songs. I did all kinds of uh, singing. Uh, but uh, my my career in that field began and ended with that uh, with, <laughs> with, with 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 that job. I never did it again. I never have to this day. And uh, so you say, how did I get? Then I oh, right, I came back to New York, and my mother by that time had made her way to the coast. She was in Los Angeles. She was looking for work as an actress. She knew quite a few people in the business out there, like uh, Ian Hunter and. Uh, uh, Sarah Allgood and some uh, Arthur Shields, all, all kinds of people who were uh, also for emigres from Ireland and England who were actors. So she said to me, why don't you come out to Los Angeles? I think I found we have some family out here and we could live much cheaper here. And uh, I went out to the coast and I really couldn't get a job. You know, I, I was on the market as a young actress and uh, I did do some... Uh, uh, some auditions at Paramount and 20th Century Fox and places. But uh, I did my act, and they really thought I was a bit mad. Here was this English girl coming, screaming around and, you know, doing all these voices and things. So finally, um, I gave up, and I got a job in a department store. I, I didn't give up, don't misunderstand me, but I had to make some money. So I, I worked in the uh, in the cashier's department of a very illustrious uh, department store in Los Angeles called Bullock's, Bullock's Wilshire. And uh, from there I became a sales lady. And it was during the um, time of my first uh, vacation from the store, two weeks after Christmas, that I got a call from a young friend of mine who was being, uh, being considered for the role of Dorian Gray. And he said, Angie, I think I could get you an interview with a casting director. And uh, I will, I will see that you get get into the studio. It's very difficult to get into the studio like MGM. I mean, you couldn't just walk in; the doors were locked, you know. So you had to have a lot of entree. And uh, finally, I did. And when my mother came with me because I was underage, I was only seventeen at the time. And on that first interview, the the casting director sent me straight in to see George Cukor, the director, and the producer Arthur Hornblow of Gaslight. And uh, George Cukor uh, greeted me very warmly. He was a terribly nice man, very sensitive and understanding of the nervousness of a young actress on these occasions. But uh, he asked my mother to coach me in the scene and that we would come back the next day and I'd read it. So I did. And um, he then was very enthusiastic again and uh, he arranged for me to have a test. So I tested with a young actor who at that time um, was Hugh Marlowe, and I made the test. He played the uh, Charles Boyer role, and uh, I made this test. Mm. It was very oh, a wonderful, wonderful event, and I, I didn't know whether I'd get the part or not. But the point was that while I was there seeing about Gaslight, they were looking for a young girl to play Sybil Vane in the picture of Dorian Gray, which was the reason I went to the studio, actually. So I, uh, of course, I did manage to get both roles. 
Well, you got both. You got Academy Award nominations for both, and it set off just a string of film and 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 early television work as well right away throughout really the late 40s and the 1950s. Upon release, Gaslight received mixed critical reviews, although Lansbury's role was widely praised and won her an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Her next film appearance was as Edwina Brown, a minor character in National Velvet, which proved to be a major commercial hit, with Lansbury developing a lifelong friendship with co-star Elizabeth Taylor. Lansbury next starred in The Picture of Dorian Gray, a cinematic adaptation of Oscar Wilde's 1890 novel of the same name, which was again set in Victorian London. Although the film was not a financial success, Lansbury's performance once more drew praise, earning her a Golden Globe Award, and she was again nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards. At 19, Lansbury was supporting her mother and student brothers financially. If anything good came out of my father's early death, she noted, it was being catapulted into maturity ahead of my contemporaries. I grew up fast because I had to. On 27th of September 1945, Lansbury, not yet out of her teens, married Richard Cromwell a handsome artist turned actor whose career had come to a standstill and who was almost 15 years her senior. Their marriage lasted less than a year, however. After arriving home one day, Lansbury found a note from him that simply read, Sorry, I can't go on. Bewildered and devastated, she couldn't understand her husband's deflection until a publicist at the studio informed her that Richard was gay. It was a terrible shock, she noted. I was devastated. But once I got over the shock, I said, All right then, I'm going to take charge of my life and see that I never hurt like this again. He showed me a world full of colors I'd never seen. So why he wanted to marry me, I'll never know. My theory is that he fell in love with Sybil in the picture of Dorian Gray. I was absolutely shattered when he left, although we found a way to remain friendly right up until his death in 1960. It made me, in a way, a little bit tough, she says. I know it did. Not long thereafter, in December 1946, Lansbury was introduced to Peter Pullenshaw at a party. He was a dazzling-looking man, she noted. He had come out of the army and was so good-looking, people said he had to be an actor. Shaw was in fact an aspiring actor, also signed to MGM, who had recently left a relationship with Joan Crawford. He and Lansbury became a couple, living together before she proposed marriage. Shaw would eventually become one of the top agents in Hollywood and Lansbury's manager. Theirs was a famously rock-solid union that lasted 54 years until his death from heart failure in 2003. We were a unit, Lansbury noted. We didn't shut out the world, but we were almost too self-contained. He totally controlled my career as time went by and made it possible for me to do what I did. We managed it somehow, some way, she recalled. Following on from the success of Gaslight and the Picture of Dorian Gray, MGM put Lansbury under contract. For $500 a week, she later noted, a lot of money in those days. 
The studio cast her in 11 further films. Biographers Edelman and Kupferberg, however, believed that the majority of these films were mediocre, doing little to further Lansbury's career. Many sources have also commented on the fact that she was consistently miscast by MGM. She was repeatedly made to portray older, maternal figures in mostly supporting roles. As she later stated, Hollywood made me old before my time, noting that in her 20s she was receiving fan mail from people who believed her to be in her 40s. Still, as Jessie Green noted in the New York Times, playing old, though she resented it at first, was second nature to someone who by her own description had never been young. Despite Lansbury's well-received performances in a number of films, celluloid superstardom evaded her and she became increasingly dissatisfied with film and with MGM, feeling that the studio did not allow her to explore her potential as an actress. I knew that Hollywood didn't know what to do with me, she later noted. Unhappy with the role she was given, Lansbury terminated her contract with MGM in 1952. Following the birth of her first child, a son Anthony, she joined the East Coast touring productions of two former Broadway plays. Howard Lindsay and Russell Krause's Remains to be Seen and Louis Vanille's Affairs of State. Biographer Margaret Bonanno later stated that at this point, Lansbury's career had hit an all-time low. In April of 1957, Lansbury made her debut on Broadway at the Henry Miller Theatre in Hotel Paradiso a French burlesque set in Paris directed by Peter Glenville. The play only ran for a few months, although she earned good reviews. This was followed in 1960 by A Taste of Honey. Lansbury played Helen, the boorish, verbally abusive mother of Josephine, played by Joan Plowright, only four years Lansbury's junior. When did you come back to New York? You're, we see that your Broadway debut was in 1957 in Hotel Paradiso. I came back to New York on the invitation of Peter Glenville, the director of Hotel Paradiso. He had known me uh, before in Hollywood, and uh, he decided that I should make my Broadway debut, and this would be an ideal part, play Madame Cotte. So I was thrilled to death because I never felt that I'd proven myself in any way until I appeared on Broadway. Broadway was it as far as I was concerned. To be reviewed by the critics here meant everything to me. So because I was still really a serious actress, even though I was playing dance hall girls and kicking around in Hollywood, nevertheless, I was really, really wanted a, an important stage career because to me that was it. So I went in and uh, played with uh, Bert Law and... Uh, John Emery and a wonderful cast and uh, we, we ran for about six months on Broadway and that was my Broadway debut and it was fabulous. Yeah. It's interesting, you had a very successful movie career going but you felt mm. that for your acting to give it legitimacy so to speak you had to be on Broadway. I did. Legitimacy is the word. Uh-huh. Had you always wanted to, since you were in that first acting class when you were a teenager, had you always wanted to be in theater more so than film? or Yes. So film was just kind of a diversion, a sidestep? Absolutely, because when I was in drama school, theater was all. One trained for the theater. One built one's voice. One learned makeup. One learned everything about 
presenting oneself on stage as various characters or whatever, you know. And that intrigued me. I, I always found that the most interesting part. All the, the wigs and, and the makeup and the clothes. Well, Hotel Paradiso and uh, the show that followed that, Taste of Honey, were both plays. Um, with with Taste of Honey, I mean, because that is, we do think of you as a musical performer, and Taste of Honey was a major dramatic work at, at that time. Was that the the U.S. premiere of the show at that time? Yes, that was the U.S. premiere. Yeah, yeah it had been done. Tony Richardson directing, and you played the mother of Joan Plowright who you are separated from by four years, as I understand it. Absolutely. Was this the beginning, or were you already begun this trend of playing mothers to, to actors who were virtually your age? Uh, it, it was part of the early years of doing just that. While I was at MGM during the seven years, eight years that I was under contract, I played a lot of elderly women. I played... What Walter did they say Pigeon's to you? Wife, you know. <laughs> how, how do they say to a, to a teenager, we want you to play you know, 20, 30 years older or play the mother of someone who is your age? I think that they considered that I was a character actress, and they were right, of course. It didn't faze me, you see, to do that. I, so I just took it as a, an opportunity to play a role in which I would be called upon to act older. Now, that required certain skills, attitudes, and so on, which... Uh, I had even at that early age. I don't say it as uh, to pat myself on the back. It was just seemed to be a built-in maturity, because as I told you, I grew up very fast. A lot of young people did during those first years of World War Two. It was required. We all did. Lansbury there in an interview with John Van Susten and Howard Sherman, recorded in two thousand and six for the American Theatre Wing. In nineteen sixty two. Lansbury appeared as Eleanor Iselin in the Cold War film thriller The Manchurian Candidate. Although she played actor Lawrence Harvey's mother, she was in fact only three years older than him. Biographers Edelman and Kupferberg considered this role Lansbury's enduring cinematic triumph, while Gottfried stated that it was the strongest, the most memorable, and the best picture she ever made. She gives her finest film performance in it. No wonder then that Lansbury received her third Best Supporting Actress Academy Award nomination for the film. At the age of 38, and with three Academy Award nominations under her belt, Lansbury received a letter out of the blue from writer and director Arthur Lawrence, asking if she'd be interested in doing a musical that he was writing with Stephen Sondheim called Anyone Can Whistle. Lansbury auditioned for the role of the crooked mayoress Cora Hoover Hooper. Eager to work with both Lawrence and Sondheim, she managed to convince them that she could do the part, despite her own misgivings about the script and her ability to handle the score. I thought it was nuts, crackers, she noted, but there was something about the role that appealed to me. Cora Hoover Hooper was such an outrageous character, and you have to understand that, Really and truly from the get-go, I have been interested in character. What that person is like underneath those layers. This role said to me, there's some gold that could be mined here. So then, Anyone Can Whistle, your first musical role. How did that come about? 
Well, that was a sort of a miracle, and I, I, I'll never forget the day. I can just see, you know, certain certain memories that remain, you know, etched in your mind, uh-huh. and and I never forget getting this wonderfully thin, thin blue envelope, and on the back it said Arthur Lawrence. Now I knew vaguely who Arthur Lawrence was, but not terribly well. And it opened the envelope, and you know, it said something to the effect, "Dear Miss Lansbury." Stephen Sondheim and I are uh, going to be involved in a new musical which he has written and I am planning to direct it and we'd be very interested to hear you sing because there's a role of the mayoress in it and uh, we're coming out to California and would you would you be prepared to audition for us? Well, I wrote back immediately and said on my knees, you know, down there, Yes, I would. Did I you mean, know Stephen Sondheim's no. work at that point? Oh, I knew his work just through Gypsy and uh, uh, also through uh, West Side Story. So I knew who he was, and I certainly knew who Arthur was through Turning Point and various big Hollywood scripts. That's how I knew of him. So he was a very illustrious name, you see, and still is. So I, um, I prepared myself, uh, and they came out, and I went into a room, and I sang... A Foggy Day in London Town. Huh. Everybody knows that. That's no news. Uh, it, it was terribly exciting for me. The, the, the only thing I can say is, at that time in my career, I could sing on pitch, you know, and uh, that was about it, really. Were you tempted to sing anything that Sondheim himself had, had written? Um, no. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that kind of a singer. I was never a stand-up singer. Uh-huh. Well, in fact, I read that... There was a question about whether you were actually able to sing loud enough to be on Broadway. Now you're talking. Uh, Loudness was all in those days because we were not miked to the degree that people are today. And uh, we were dependent on foot mics and and shotguns in the wings. So you really had to have quite a a bit of voice, you know. And uh, mine had not been developed to that degree that it should have been because I just didn't realize until it happened that I might be called upon to sing on Broadway with a full orchestra. And that's something else, you know. Well, you said that you certainly knew who Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence were. Um, How did they know of you? How did they discover you? They knew me through the movies. Uh Um, I think they'd seen me, and they'd probably seen me on Broadway playing uh, the mother in in, uh, In A Taste of Honey, honey, and uh, also in, in Hotel Paradiso. But but you weren't known as a singer, so how did they know you could you could sing? Well, I'd sung I'd sung in the movies, you know. Uh-huh. I'd sung in uh, Till the Clouds Rolled By, and uh, that that and um, uh, Sybil Vane sang, of course, in the picture of Dorian Gray. I did not actually sing in the other movie, which was um, uh, the Harvey Girls. I didn't sing. That was somebody else's voice. MGM Music Department didn't think I had the voice to do that. And I didn't. I, I know that now. I do today, but I didn't then. But clearly you met the challenge. You were loud enough <laughs> for for everyone. And do you recall what the, the spirit was around that production? It was actually Sondheim's second show, Writing Music and Lyrics, because it followed Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, but certainly had a different take and a different tone. And as we know now, many years on, it had... An extremely short run, but what was the sense of what you were creating at that time? I think what the show did was it gave me the confidence 
to think that I could improve and that I would have an op- that I would have a ch- that I could have a chance to do more in musical theater but I must say that after that particular nine performances I was knocked out vocally and I didn't sing probably for six months hmm. certainly uh, anyone can whistle demanded the whole shebang you know if you listen to that score uh, I was singing everything everything uh, so many songs at the top of my lungs screaming my way through a great deal of it to my to my shame and chagrin I really didn't know how to sing in those days I just got away with it. But in those days, shows were not mic'd the way they are today and simply getting the song across, literally across the footlights into the audience, was a prized skill. It wasn't always about the beauty of the voice. It was about the power of the voice. That's absolutely true. And that worked in this case because she was a, a kind of a dreadful woman, Cora Hoover, Hoover, Hoover and uh, she wanted what she wanted when she wanted it and she was a tough broad, you know. So I didn't sing for a year after I did that. Wow. And uh, I just – I thought I've blown it. I have absolutely blown my vocal cords. I hadn't, of course. As it turned out, I started to sing seriously and to, to have some help and then when I did MAME, which was the next thing I did, and uh, uh, that was when my voice started to find itself. Although we were still working without microphones. Mm-hmm. We were dependent on those foot mics and the, the shotguns, and that's all we had. And we were trying to beat our way through the, the brass, you know. Lansbury there in an interview with John Van Susten and Howard Sherman, recorded in 2006 for the American Theatre Wing. Anyone Can Whistle opened at the Majestic Theatre on Broadway on April 4, 1964, but was critically panned and closed after only nine performances. Let's listen now to Lansbury singing Me and My Town from Anyone Can Whistle with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Everyone hates me, yes, yes. Being the mayoress, yes All of the peasants throw rocks in my presence Which causes me nervous distress, yes Me and my town battered about Everyone in it would like to get out Me and my town, we just want to be loved Stores are for rent, theaters are dark Grass on the sidewalks, but not in the park Me and my town, we just want to be loved Come on the bus Somebody please buy a ticket to us Hurry on down We need a little renown Love me 
Snoop. Bank went bust and I'm feeling blue. And who took over the bankruptcy? Me, boys, me. CC. Me, boys, me. From the reservoir. And what's the state of the water supply? Dry, boys, dry. My, my. Dry, boys, dry. Hey, A lady has responsibility. Responsibility. And civic pride. Civic pride. Well, I look around and what do I see? I see no crops. No crops. I see no business. No business. To the north, to the south, only hoof and mouth. To, to the, the east, to the, the west, no community test. I see a terrible depression all over the town. Oh, a terrible depression, a terrible depression. What a terrible depression, and I'm so depressed I can hardly talk on the phone. I feel all alone. But the lady has responsibilities. Responsibilities. To all my poor, yeah. starving, yeah. cold, yeah. miserable, yeah. dirty, yeah. dreary, yeah. depressing. Yeah. A lady has responsibilities, responsibilities To try to be popular with the populace She's unpopular with the populace Unpopular with the populace Unpopular with the populace Unpopular with the populace Everyone here hates me at length Probably lynch me if they had the strength But me and my town, me and my town We just want to be loved We just want to be loved, we just want to be loved just a friendship is lovely and a courtship supplies. But give her a township. Township every time. What'll we do? In 1966, Lansbury took on the role of Mame Dennis in the musical Mame, Jerry Herman's musical adaptation of the novel Auntie Mame. The producers had originally offered the title role to Mary Martin, but she turned it down, and some 40 other actresses had to be eliminated before the part finally went to Lansbury. Theatre critics and Broadway insiders were surprised at the choice, since everyone assumed it would go to a better-known actress, a money name. Lansbury was 40 years old and certainly not an obvious choice for the lead in a splashy new musical. Here is Lansbury in an interview recorded in 1998 for the Archive of American Television. Oh, it was just a number of wonderful circumstances. The thing that really brought me to Maine was Anyone Can Whistle, because nobody had ever seen Angela Lansbury on stage singing, dancing, playing a leading role, and they didn't know whether I could do it. Didn't know I could do it. Didn't know I had the capacity or the voice or anything else. And several people saw me, even though there were only nine performances, and one of those people was Jerry Herman, the composer who just had an enormous success with uh, Hello, Dolly. And uh, he saw me, and uh, he, he was one of the few people who saw anyone come whistle. And thank goodness he did, as I say, because when the time came, he 
and Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee were writing the uh, musical version of, of Auntie Mame. It was going to be called, they didn't know it was going to be called Mame. In fact, they were going to call it all sorts of other things, and I said, oh, call it Mame. I said, just call it Mame. So uh, they did. And I sort of feel slightly responsible for, for them making that decision. Had Ros- Rosalind Russell uh, originated the role? She had originated it on, uh, in the theater, certainly. She was Auntie Mame. And uh, many other great actresses have taken it on the road. and it, uh, You know, everybody knew Auntie Mame. And then they, they made a movie of it. And she also played the role in the movie. But uh, when it came to the musical, it was offered to her. And uh, she said, no, thank you very much. I don't, want to, I don't want to eat yesterday's dinner or some wonderful remark like that. <laughs> so she didn't do it. And the search went out to find somebody to play the role. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of actresses were asked, including um, up till the very last minute, uh, Mary Martin. And uh, Mary was going to play, play it right up until the end. And then suddenly she bowed out. And uh, Lucille Ball was thought of, I think, at the time, and Southern, all kinds of people. But uh, Jerry Herman wanted me. God bless him. And uh, well, after a lot of shenanigans, I got the part. I had to work hard for it. I had to audition a lot. And uh, thank goodness Josh Logan was the original director, and he really didn't want me for that. And uh, finally he was replaced with another director, and... Uh, that was Gene Sachs, the director, New York director. And uh, thank goodness Gene uh, said yes. And so we, off we went. Uh, I was Mame. Mame opened at the Winter Garden Theatre on Broadway in May of 1966, with a cast that, besides Lansbury as Mame, included B. Arthur as Vera Charles, Frankie Michaels as Patrick, Jane Cannell as Agnes Gooch, and Willard Waterman as Dwight Babcock. Reviews of Lansbury's performance were outstandingly positive. In the New York Times, Stanley Kaufman wrote, Miss Lansbury is a singing-dancing actress, not a singer or dancer who also acts. In this marathon role, she has wit, poise, and warmth. Lansbury subsequently won her first Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical for her portrayal of Mame Dennis. After more than two decades as a supporting actress and character actress, Lansbury was finally a star. I was ready for it. It was everything that I had envisioned for myself accomplishing in the musical theatre. Because what I haven't told you is that all during the years at MGM when I was battling along, playing battle axes and so on, I was running in and watching rehearsals, all of the musical rehearsals for the great uh, uh, musical movies that were being made on the lot at that time with Gene Kelly and, uh, you know, and Leslie Caron and all those, and I knew all of the musical people involved, and I, I thought, oh gosh, this is it. This is what I really want to be doing. This is what I'm going to really love to do one day. And I really visualized myself doing it until I did. I found myself up on the stage playing me. I think in my, my gut feeling was, yes, it was going to be okay. Uh, the audiences were so uh, overwhelmingly uh, encouraging, and they love the show. They love the book of May. Mame's a wonderful story about a little boy and a, his aunt. You know, it, it's a winner. 
<laughs> you can't go far wrong with Maine. However, I, I had to prove that I, I could really be the big star. And I'd never done that, never had that opportunity to really be the star of the show. And it took me quite a while to take stage, to become that character, and to become a star. Not just Angela Lansbury playing the role of Maine, but I had to be this larger-than-life person. And I'd never really done that before. And it took all of those weeks on the road for me to really garner the strength and the understanding and the nous, as my friend Kate Hepburn would say, to take stage, you know. That's a wonderful moment when you decide you're going to do it. You go for it and you do it. It's like running the mile in four. When I saw my name first, when it was written up over the marquee of the Winter Garden Theatre on Broadway, it said Angela Lansbury in Maine. You know, my name was in the same size as Maine. And that was a day to remember. I mean, that was it. I'd arrived because I was carrying the show and it was working and we were sold out. <laughs> you know, it was very thrilling, very, very exciting. And that interview clip was recorded in September 1998 for the Archive of American Television. Preparing for the vocal demands of MAME, so different to anyone can whistle, Lansbury later commented, I did everything I could do to build my voice for MAME. There were several people who helped me learn how to sing the right way. I never knew how to do the exercises, and I don't, to this day. I just stand up and sing. I don't know how to stand up and sing, except in a role. I am not a stand-up singer. I can't do it. But when it came to Mame and the songs that I got to sing, they were natural for me. They sat perfectly within my range. They were just super to sing. I'd like to play to you now Lansbury's rendition of If He Walked Into My Life, from Mame, with music and lyrics by Jerry Herman. Where's that boy with a bugle? My little love, who was always my Big romance. Where's that boy with a bugle? And why did I ever buy him those damn long pants? Did he need a stronger hand? Did he need a lighter touch? Was I soft or was I tough? Did I give enough? Did I give too much? At the moment when he needed me Did I ever turn away? Would I be there when he called If he walked into my life today Were his days a little dull 
were his nights a little while Did I overstate my plan? Did I stress the man and forget the child? And there must have been a million things that my heart forgot to say Would I think of one or two If he walked into my life today Should I blame the times I pampered him Or blame the times I bossed him What a shame I never really found the boy Before I lost him Were the years a little fast Was his world a little free Was there too much of a crowd All too lush and loud And not enough of me Though I'll ask myself My whole life long What went wrong along the way Would I make the same mistakes If he walked into my life Today If that boy with a bugle Walked into my life Here is Angela Lansbury and close friend B. Arthur singing Bosom Buddies from the musical Mame. We'll always be bosom buddies, friends, sisters and pals. We'll always be bosom buddies if life should reject you there's protect you if I say that your tongue is vicious if I call you uncouth it's simply that who else but a bosom buddy will sit down and tell you the truth though now and again I'm aware that my candid opinion may sting though often my frank observation might scold to tell you for years you should keep your hair natural like mine if I kept my hair natural like yours I'd be bald but darling we'll always be dear companions my crony my mate we'll always be Sense of styles as far off as your youth. It's simply that who 
else but up for somebody will tell you the whole stinking truth. Each time that a critic has written, your voice is the voice of a frog. Straight to your side to defend you, I rush. You know that I'm there every time that the world makes an unkind remark. When they say Vera Charles is the world's greatest lush, it hurts me. And if I say your fangs are showing, main pull in your claws, it's simply that. Who else but a somebody will notice the obvious flaws? I feel it's my duty to tell you it's time to adjust to your age. You try to be peg of my heart when you're Lady Macbeth. Exactly how old are you, Vera? The truth. How old do you think? Oh, I'd say somewhere in between 40 and death. But, sweetie, I'll always be Alice Toklas if you'll be Gertrude Stein. And though I'll admit I've dished you, I've gossiped and gloated, but I'm so devoted. And if I say that sex and guts made you into a star it's simply that who else but a somebody will tell you how rotten you are just turn to your somebody for aid and affection for help and direction for loyalty love and for supreme In 1969, Lansbury followed the success of Mame with the role of Countess Aurelia, the 75-year-old Parisian eccentric in Dear World, a musical adaptation of Jean Gerardou's The Mad Woman of Shalott. The show was generally panned by critics, though Lansbury got good reviews and won her second Tony for the role. Clive Barnes in the New York Times wrote, the minor miracle is Miss Lansbury. No connoisseur of musical comedy can afford to miss her performance. It is lovely. Dear World ended its run after 132 performances. It was a gem of a musical, noted Lansbury, but the audience hated it because they were led to believe that they were going to see Angela Lansbury doing another version of Mame. And here I come out as this old, wildly eccentric lady. People just weren't prepared for that and didn't want to know. Lansbury would later confess that Dear World represented to her the best vocal performance of her career. Here is I Don't Want to Know from Dear World with music and lyrics by Jerry Herman.
If music is no longer lovely, if laughter is no longer lilting, if lovers are no longer loving, then I don't want to know if summer is no longer carefree, if children are no longer singing, if people are no longer happy, then I don't want to know. Let me hide every truth from my eyes with the back of my hand. Let me live in a world full of lies with my head in the sand for my memories. All are exciting my memories. All are enchanted my memories. Burn in my head with a steady glow. So if my friends, if love is dead, I don't want to know. If music is no longer lovely, if laughter is. Lansbury followed Dear World with an appearance in the title role in the musical Pretty Belle, based upon Jean Arnold's The Rape of Pretty Belle. Set in the Deep South, it dealt with issues of racism, with Lansbury as a wealthy alcoholic who seeks sexual encounters with black men. A controversial topic, it opened in Boston but received poor reviews and was cancelled before it reached Broadway. If things weren't going well professionally for Lansbury, her personal life had also become troubled. In September of 1970, the family's Malibu home was destroyed in a fire, and not long thereafter, she learned that her children Anthony and Deirdre had fallen in with an unsuitable crowd and became heavily involved with drugs, despite being barely in their teens. Something had to be done, and Lansbury and her husband Peter decided to move the family to rural Ireland. I was drawn to Ireland because it was the birthplace of my mother, Lansbury noted, and it was also somewhere my children wouldn't be exposed to any further bad influences. So I refused all work for a year and simply kept house. I bought Elizabeth David's books and learned how to cook properly. It was a wonderful time in my life. 
In 1971, Lansbury returned to work, appearing in the Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks as the cunning apprentice witch Miss Eglantine Price, who, during the Battle of Britain, decides to use her supernatural powers to defeat the Nazi menace. Lansbury won the role after Lynn Redgrave, Leslie Caron and Judy Kahn were tested. Julie Andrews was approached by Disney but refused the role. Several months later, she reportedly phoned Disney to say that she had changed her mind and wanted to do the film because she felt that she owed Disney for her earlier success in Mary Poppins. By then, however, Lansbury had already secured the part. Here now is the charming substitutiary locomotion from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Traguna Macoides Tricorum Satisti Substitutiary locomotion, mystic power that's far beyond the wildest notion. It's so weird, so feared, yet wonderful to see. Substitutiary locomotion, come to me. Traguna, Macoides, Tracorum, Satis D. Traguna, Macoides, Tracorum, Satis D. I don't want locomotionary substitution or remote in transitory convolution. Only one precise solution is the key. Substitutionary locomotion, it must be Traguna, Macoides, and Tracorum, Satis D. Substitutionary history with Traguna, Macoides, and a little help from me. With Traguna, Macoides, and Traguna, Author Martin Gottfried wrote in his biography of Lansbury that, as a singing and dancing apprentice witch, Angela is game at best, but uncharacteristically detached from the material at hand. At times, she seems downright bored with the picture, and is virtually blank-faced during a long stretch of stupid animated action late in the proceedings. Despite the frequent comparison to the earlier Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks was a great commercial success and Lansbury partial to it, saying, it secured an enormous audience for me. Lansbury once explained that it was all peaches and cream, an introduction for me to movie audiences, singing and dancing, which turned the corner for me. It's not an acting role, she noted, it's a performing role. There's a difference. The techniques used in shooting a Disney picture are specific and quite unique. They pre-plan every shot. There's no room for improvisation. The trick is to make it seem alive and fresh and improvisational. The composing team of brothers Richard and Robert Sherman, who had written the score for Mary Poppins, also composed the music for Bedknobs and Broomsticks. 
One of the highlights of the film is Lansbury's rendition of The Age of Not Believing, which was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Music Original Song. When you rush around in hopeless circles, searching everywhere for something true, you're at the age of not believing when all the make-believe is through. When you set aside your childhood heroes and your dreams are lost upon a shelf, you're at the age of not believing and worst of all you doubt yourself. You're a castaway where no one hears you On a barren isle in a lonely sea Where did all the happy endings go? Where can all the good times be? You must face the age of not believing Doubting everything you ever knew Until at last you start believing There's something wonderful in you The Age of Not Believing from Bedknobs and Broomsticks with music and lyrics by Richard and Robert Sherman. While in Ireland, Lansbury was offered the role of Mama Rose in the original London production of the Jules Stein Stephen Sondheim Arthur Lawrence musical Gypsy, a role made famous by Ethel Merman. Lansbury declined the offer. I just didn't think I could pull that off. 
I didn't think I could follow Merman, she noted. I didn't think I had the lung power. Following some persuasion by the producers, however, Lansbury finally agreed. In a statement at the time, she noted, I can't beat Merman at the singing game, and she can't beat me at the acting game, so no contest. Let's listen now to an interview with Lansbury, recorded in 2006 for the American Theatre Wing, followed by Lansbury's rendition of Some People from Gypsy. I, I know you'd like to talk about Gypsy, and I can tell you right now that when I was in London, uh, having completed Doing All Over uh, at the Royal Shakespeare, that was when I first had the pitch from Arthur, uh, Arthur Lawrence, and... Uh, uh, Barry Brown and, and uh, Fritz Holt to do Gypsy in London. I said, you must be crazy. I said, I, I, I wouldn't begin to uh, think that I could bring that off, you know. After all, everybody associates Ethel Merman with Gypsy. I do. You know, I think that overture is one of the great pieces of musical theatre, you know. I would, if I want to really wrap myself up, I'll listen to that overture. Well, my gosh, I said no. I know, no, no. And for a year I said no. And then finally they came back to me, and by that time I haven't had enough time to think about it. And I, I said, all right, I'll give it a try. But people had thought of Rosalind Russell as Mame from the movie version, not the musical, but the movie version. You became Mame on stage. So why was there doubt in your mind about doing Gypsy? Uh, because of the vocal requirements. I thought her voice is, is just... The, uh, yeah. the range, the power? That the sort of the range and the power, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And had you seen the original production? Had you seen Merman? No, I never saw it. So it was only the cast album, perhaps. Yes. I was in was California, and I never saw it. As you know, it didn't run very long. It ran for six months, I think, was all. It wasn't a huge success on Broadway. She was, and the album was, you know, had legs, as they say. It went on and on and on to this day. So we talked about your take on MAME, your take on... Gypsy, your, your take on Mama Rose, which seems to be, with each generation, there is a new Mama Rose, because subsequent to you, we had Tyne Daly, and subsequent to Tyne Daly, we mm-hmm. had Bernadette Peters. How, how would you describe your Mama Rose? My Mama Rose, I think, um, well, I, I saw Tyne Daly's, and um, I didn't see Bernadette. Um, I... I, I I, not by comparison, no, but just I, I, what you what you went for in the role. Well, what did I go for? Oh, mm-hmm. oh. well, I went for an innate reality, and, and I, I really wanted to understand the kind of woman who would behave as she did, a woman who had this absolutely burning desire for self-recognition, which, of course, she never gets, but she's going to get it through her children. So it's that horrifying thing of somebody trying to attain for themselves. Uh, and what they can't attain for themselves, they'll get it through their kids. And um, they'll they'll stop at anything. They'll stop at nothing to achieve success for their kids. But it's really for them, you know. Anybody who stays home is dead. If I die, it won't be from sitting. It'll be from fighting to get up and get out. Some people can get a thrill Knitting sweaters and sitting still That's okay for some people Who don't know they're alive Some people can thrive and bloom Living life in the living room 
That's perfect for some people of 105. But I... That I gotta see at all the places I gotta play, all the things that I gotta be at. Come on, Papa, what do you say? Some people can be content playing bingo and paying rent. That's peachy for some people, for some humdrum people to be. I had a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa. All about June and the Orpheum circuit. Give me a chance and I know I can work it. I had a dream, just as real as can be, Papa. There I was in Mr. Orpheum's office. And he was saying to me, some new orchestrations, new routines and red velvet curtains. Get a feathered hat for the baby, photographs in front of the theater. Get an agent and a jig time. You'll be being booked in the big time. Oh, what a dream. A wonderful dream, Papa. And all that I need is 88 bucks, Papa. That's what he said, Papa. Only 88 bucks, Papa. You ain't getting 88 cents out of me, Rose. Then I'll get it someplace else. But I'll get it and get my kids out. I had to go to all the lodges I had to play All the Shriners I said hello to Hey LA, I'm coming your way Some people sit on their butts Got the dream, yeah, but not the guts That's living for some people For some humdrum people, I suppose Well, they can stay and rock Despite her initial concerns, when Gypsy opened in May 1973 in the West End, Lansbury earned a standing ovation and rave reviews. Following the culmination of the London run in 1974, Gypsy toured to the US, and in Chicago, Lansbury was awarded the Sarah Siddons Award for her performance. The show eventually reached Broadway, where it ran until 1975. A critical success and the first major revival of the show on Broadway, it earned Lansbury her third Tony Award. In April 1978, Lansbury appeared as Anna in 24 performances of a Broadway revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, replacing Constance Towers who was on a short break. Of her appearances, Lansbury noted, Oh yes, that was a real side trip. 
an opportunity to play a famous lovely role. Also, to sing a score which was totally different from anything I had ever done before, and working on it very briefly really, with just a couple of weeks of rehearsal, but working with Richard Rogers. He came to rehearsals, he sat there and helped me, and taught me every line of those songs. I was so struck by his kindness, it was a singular experience, and I loved it. So... You've come back now. You've done Gypsy on Broadway. And f- a couple of years after that, you, you went into The King and I for a bit. Didn't create the role in that production. Just wondering what, what prompted you to, to take over since you'd, you'd originated ever, ever in all of the other shows. Again, uh, I was asked. <laughs> <laughs> Who, what, when, where, why? Simple, simple, simple. Um, the, the lead who was... Um, Gil Brenner was desperate to have a, a, a holiday. And so they decided they'd give him three weeks off, and at the same time, they would give um, Constance, Constance, Towers. Constance Towers three weeks off at the same time. So I played Connie's part, uh, Mrs. Anna. Evans. Mrs. Anna. Yes, and um, Michael... Name's gone from me. Played um, Yul Brynner's role, and we kept the show going for three weeks in in very good shape. And it was a lovely opportunity for me to learn mm. that role. So it was a wonderful role, and I got to use my soprano voice and all these things which I hadn't done. It was a very good thing I did too. So you just stepped in for because those three I was going to need it. I stepped in for three weeks. Right. But do you know I was rehearsed by Richard Rogers, mm. and I had all new costumes made by that divine costumier, with a not Chinese name, but I forget her name. Anyway, um, I had these beautiful, beautiful gowns, all new. But you were really put in, in a way we don't often see people go in, you know, Mm -hmm. as replacements. And, of course, we we don't have the occasion of major, major stars Mm -hmm. taking over a role for, as you said, for three weeks. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen in this day and age. Well, you know, uh, we British actors are used to playing in in, uh, repertory, and we don't mind playing a role for a short time. Lansbury there talking about her experience of doing The King and I in that interview from 2008 with John Van Susten and Howard Sherman recorded for the American Theatre Wing. Lansbury's first cinematic role in seven years was as novelist and murder victim Salome Otterborn in 1978's Death on the Nile, an adaptation of Agatha Christie's novel of the same name. She starred alongside former brother-in-law Peter Ustinov and Betty Davis, who became a close friend. The role earned Lansbury the National Board of Review Award for Best Supporting Actress of 1978. Well, I was standing in my kitchen one day in Ireland, and uh, suddenly we had a crank telephone, you know, in those days. The lady in the post office put the call through, and the phone cranked, and uh, it was a telegram from Arthur Lawrence and uh, Stephen Sondheim. And uh, it was saying, would you be interested in playing the part of Nellie Lovett in a musical version of the Demon Barber of uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street? And, uh, well, I looked at Peter, and when I read the wire, I said, well, that's interesting. It's a very interesting idea. Because as children... We had both been brought up with 
this kind of legendary bogeyman who was, the, who was Sweeney Todd, who slit people's throats and made meat pies. So I, I thought, well, it's certainly something to consider, and they're very enthusiastic, these two, and they, they're, obviously they're brilliant. They must have something up their sleeve for, for this show. So, but on the other hand, you know, the old star said, hey, wait a minute, this is called uh, Sweeney Todd. How does Mrs. Lovett fit in, you know? <laughs> it's not called Natalie Lovett, the demon barber of Sleet Street. It's Sweeney Todd. So I thought, I hope, you know, is this a good part? So um, anyway, uh, when I got on the phone to them and uh, we started talking about, uh, you know, how it was going to be, I realized that uh, it, 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 it was going to be an extraordinary production that I must be involved because Hal Prince, the great director, was directing it. And, uh, you know, here you had this triumvirate of talent on, on board. So I, I thought this is probably a terrific thing to do. So I, be, I, I said yes. I always said she was a very resourceful woman. She didn't let anything go to waste. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, the meat pies were her idea. No, it wasn't his. Uh, she was just being awfully clever and, and using available material. So, uh, you know, but she was a marvelous character. And I, I, w the more I got into it, the more I realized this was an opportunity to go back to my roots, you know, and, and to, to do a character that I really would relish getting my teeth into. <gasps> a customer! Wait, what you rush, what you hurry? They gave me such a fright. I thought you was a ghost. Half a minute, can't you sit? Sit you down, sit. All I meant is that I haven't seen a customer for weeks. Did you come in for a pie, sir? Do forgive me if me has a little fake. Ugh, what is that? But you think we are the plague? From the way that people keep avoiding. No, you don't. Happen as I try, sir. Ugh, but there's no one comes in even to inhale. Right you are, so would you like a drop of ale? Mind you, I can't hardly blame them. These are probably the worst pies in London. I know why nobody cares to take them. I should know and make them. But good now, the worst pies in London. Even that's polite, the worst pies in London. If you doubt it, take a bite. Is that just disgusting? You have to concede it. It's nothing but trusting. You drink this, you'll need the worst pies in London And no wonder with the price of meat What it is when you get it Never thought I'd live to see the day Men would think it was a treat Finding poor animals What are dying in the street Mrs Mooney has a pie shop Does a business but I've noticed something weird Lately all the neighbours' cats have disappeared After to wind to a What I call enterprise Popping pussies into pies Wouldn't do in my shop just the thought of it's enough to make you sick And I'm telling you, the pussycats is quick Now denying times is hard, sir Even harder than the worst pies in London Only loud and nothing more is than just revolting All greasy and gritty It looks like it's melting and tastes like Well, pity a woman alone with limited wind and the worst part in London times is hard times is hard <laughs>
Angela Lansbury there in that 1998 interview recorded for the Archive of American Television, followed by her brilliant rendition of The Worst Pies in London from Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Opening at Broadway's Eurus Theatre in March 1979, Sweeney Todd was directed by legendary director Hal Prince and starred Lansbury as Mrs. Nellie Lovett alongside Lane Cario as Sweeney Todd, the murderous barber in 19th century London. Although Sweeney Todd received mixed critical reviews, critics praised the show's leading lady, and it earned her a fourth Tony Award. In its review, the New York Times said of her performance, Angela Lansbury makes towering use of the opportunities afforded her in Sweeney Todd. Her initial number in which she sings of selling the worst pies in London while pounding dough and making as many purposefully flailing gestures as a pinwheel is a triumph. Her songs, many of them rapid patter songs with awkward musical intervals and having to be sung while doing five or ten other things at once, are awesomely difficult and she does them awesomely well. Here is Lansbury in a 1998 interview recorded for the Archive of American Television. So when you got to Mrs. Lovett, again, a very different score from the first Sondheim score you'd done, but in a vast house where now miking comes into play. Was that as difficult a part for you to sing? Was it that you'd learned more or was it that he'd written something that was more in your comfort range? I had learned, I had grown vocally. The show that absolutely was my best vocal work was Dear World. If you if I listen to that recording, I say, good heavens, you really could sing, you old dear. And it really makes me laugh, you know, because... But, and then along comes Sweeney Todd. That required every kind of voice that I have. My uh, low voice, my, my high voice, my soprano voice. And I, I sort of... I just... I loved it. I, I got to do everything that I could do. I could do it by that time. I'd learned how to sing. Took a long time, but I did. I learned how to sing and how to use it and not to be afraid and to go for it. <laughs> Lansbury remained in the role of Mrs. Lovett for 14 months before being replaced by Dorothy Lodon, although she did return to the role in October 1980 for a 10-month tour of six U.S. cities. Fortunately, the production was also filmed and broadcast on U.S. television. In 1983, Lansbury was offered two main television roles, one in a sitcom and the other in a detective series. Although her agents advocated the former, Lansbury fortunately went with the latter instead. Knowing how to play a part can uh, pertain certainly to theater, but to film and television as well. And we'd be remiss not to talk about Jessica Fletcher and 12 Years, one of the longest-running uh, dramas ever on television, mm -hmm. one of the highest-rated and most rewarded. Mm -hmm. How did Jessica Fletcher come into your life, or you into hers? Well, I had 
I'd been touring for about, uh, playing and touring for about 15 years, and uh, I was a bit a bit tired of uh, packing and unpacking suitcases. And uh, Peter and I were living in uh, Manhattan Plaza. We had a, an apartment there, and we always kept it oh, through all the years. And our house in Ireland, we always stayed there in New York. And uh, we said to one another one day, I think it's time to have a have, to see if if I could get something cooking in television. So we put the word out with my agents. I happened to be the William Morris Agency. It's always a William Morris Agency, isn't it? <laughs> but Peter worked for them, so naturally oh. he was. Uh, <laughs> so it had to be William he Morris. He was with them, yes. <laughs> so it was William Morris, although he didn't represent me. He, other people did. So I, um, we did. We, we put the word out, and I got a call to come out to the to the coast. You know. Take a meeting on the coast. Take a meeting on the coast, yes. <laughs> so I flew out on my own, and I saw two producers. Um, one was um, Lear. Norman Lear. Uh, Norman Lear, who had a half-hour television series that he wanted to, to do, he, and he was very interested in me playing with Charlie Durning. So I went and I had a meeting with the three of them, four of us all together, and uh, read through the scenes with Charlie, and then I went and I met a fellow at Universal Studios who was doing a, a one-hour drama series called Murder, She Wrote. And uh, this had been apparently written for Gene Stapleton. And uh, I read it. I didn't uh, read it through or, or do any, you know, I didn't have to read it scenes-wise, but I read it. And I chose out of the two to do Murder, She Wrote. Even though Norman Lear was a very hot producer, yes. all in the family shows like yes. that. Yes, because I didn't think I didn't think I could bring off the, the half hour. The sitcom. The sitcom. Mm -hmm. He did it. He did it with somebody else, and it didn't work. So I'm not saying that my judgment was right necessarily, but I knew it was wrong for me. Mm -hmm. I just sensed it. Whereas Murder She Wrote, I thought, was an opportunity to play a woman of my own age, rather interesting, plain lady, and. Uh, but make something of it. Make her a, an individual, uh, maybe more different. And that interview clip, which dates from 2006, was recorded for the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Centre interview series. The pilot episode of Murder, She Wrote, titled The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, premiered on CBS on September 30th, 1984, with the rest of the first season airing on Sundays from 8 to 9 p.m. Although critical reviews were mixed, the show proved highly popular, with the first season emerging top in its time slot. Designed as inoffensive family viewing, and despite its topic, the show eschewed depicting violence or gore, following the whodunit format rather than those of most contemporary US crime shows. Lansbury herself commented that, There was never any blood, never any violence and there was always a satisfying conclusion to the whodunit. The jigsaw was complete. And I loved Jessica's every woman character. I think that's what made her so acceptable to an across-the-board audience. As the show went on, Lansbury assumed a larger role behind the scenes. In 1989, her own company, Corey Moore Productions, began co-producing the show with Universal, with Lansbury assuming the role of executive producer expressing a strong sense of responsibility for the quality of that show. I did put out a strong message that I wanted standards to be extremely high. I wanted it to be something special, she noted. 
After 12 seasons and 264 episodes, and having become a Sunday night institution in the US, Murder, She Wrote ended in 1996. At the time, it was the longest-running detective drama series in television history, and the role of Jessica Fletcher would prove to be the most enduring and certainly the most prominent of Lansbury's career. But if Lansbury was most closely associated with Jessica Fletcher, her highest-profile cinematic role since The Manchurian Candidate, at least in terms of viewership numbers, would arguably be as the voice of the singing teapot Mrs. Potts in the 1991 Disney animation film Beauty and the Beast, an appearance she considered a gift to her three grandchildren. The title song from the film was originally conceived in a rock ballad style, and when lyricist Howard Ashman and composer Alan Menken asked Lansbury whether she would consider performing the song, she responded by saying that it wasn't quite her style. However, they convinced her to record a demo and told her to perform the song in whatever way she would like to do it as if she was playing this teapot. Lansbury obliged and sent them the demo. That's it, was the reply. Lansbury reportedly reduced everyone in the studio to tears with her rendition and the song Beauty and the Beast went on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song and Grammy Award for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, Television or Other Visual Media. As old as time True as it can be Barely even friends Then somebody bends Unexpectedly Just a little change Small to say the least both a little scared, neither one prepared. Beauty and the beast, ever just the same, ever a surprise, ever as before, ever just as sure as the sun will rise. As old as time Tune as old as song Bittersweet and strange Finding you can change Learning you were wrong Certain as the sun Rising in the east Tale as old as time Song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. After the cupboard with your now chip, it's past your bedtime. 
not love. Angela Lansbury there as Mrs. Potts singing the title track from Beauty and the Beast, Disney's 1991 animated film, with music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Howard Ashman. Lansbury's husband, Peter Shaw, passed away in 2003, leaving the actress devastated. We had the perfect relationship, she noted at the time. Not many people can say that. He was everything to me. We were partners at work, as well as husband and wife and lovers. I don't know how we had such a long marriage, but the simple fact was that we were devoted to one another. You mentioned your husband, and obviously I want to talk to you about it, because it was clearly the most amazing relationship from Mm. everything I read. 53 years you were together, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he died in 2003. What was the secret, apart from this partnership, which must have been fundamental, to your longevity together i've always said it it was mainly our mutual interest in what we were doing together he had a successful business life there was no question about that he was a huge agent at at william morris and also had a production at mgm so he had a he had had a very fulfilling life and was uh, very highly thought of in the business. The fact that he was prepared to give it up uh, for the purpose of helping me to have this career in television um, was a a decision that he... It it was a very carefully arrived at decision, which we felt if we could do this together, it would make all of this getting up early, doing, you know, making our whole life this project worthwhile. And you know, it's a funny thing, you don't make a great deal of money in theatre, and uh, most actors will give their eye teeth to get a good television series. And so for me, uh, he he recognised that it was, as a business move, it was a very good one. He never felt that he was being shafted by being the husband of a, you know, he just never thought of that, of a star, no. And you, you, you obviously, for understandable reasons you sank into a deep funk depression after mm-hmm. he died mm-hmm. you said i nearly went off the rails tell me what was that like and how did you get out of that what brought you out of that um it, it's hard to say but i knew it, i just knew i had to wait and, and and the moment would arrive when i would be able to come up to the surface again and look around and see how I was going to mend this awful kind of rift inside myself. So I waited. I didn't make any moves myself. And... uh, I'm sorry. I thought, what would he want me to do? And I knew that uh, he would have wanted me to continue. I just knew that. Uh, it, there was never any question in my mind. I just, but I had to wait before I was able to do it. So it came as a bolt out of the blue, actually. Uh, my 
darling friend. Emma Thompson. Emma. Uh, suddenly, out of the blue, and I hadn't, I actually didn't know her at that point, but she became a good friend. And um, she invited me to come and play with, and, with her and Nanny McPhee. So it was a very rare and rather difficult uh, job for me, but I did, I did it, and it was fine. And I loved all the makeup and the, you know, all the nonsense that I was covered with and everything. And uh, I, it got me out of myself, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was wonderful. And here you are, obviously many years yes. later, but here you are still, still yes. doing it. Lansbury there in a 2014 interview with Christine Amunpour. In 2007, Lansbury returned to Broadway after a 23-year absence to star in Terence McNally's Deuce opposite Marion Saldes for a limited run of 18 weeks, earning her a Tony nomination for Best Leading Actress in a Play. She followed this with a portrayal of Madame Arcati in the 2009 Broadway revival of Blythe Spirit at the Schubert Theatre. The New York Times praised her performance, for which she won several awards, including the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play, her fifth Tony Award tying her with Julie Harris, and surpassed only by Audra MacDonald with six wins for the most any performer has ever received. Lansbury then starred as Madame Armfelt in the first Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music, which opened in December 2009 at the Walter Kerr Theatre. She left the show after six months and received a 2010 Tony Award nomination for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. Here is Lansbury in a 2011 interview with John Van Susten and Howard Sherman for the American Theatre Wing, talking about working with Stephen Sondheim. I want to ask you about Stephen Sondheim. You've done three Sondheim shows on Broadway over quite a span of time, really, because anyone can whistle in the 60s through doing night music just a year or so ago. What's the connection to Sondheim? With Sondheim... Because of his unique brilliance to be asked by Sondheim to appear in, to sing along his songs, is a challenge, huge challenge. Because he is a perfectionist, he hears it, he wants to hear it back. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he's, looking for, he's looking for a certain performance and sound and... If you can give it to him, he's the happiest person in the theatre. <laughs> hmm. And now, let's listen to liaisons from A Little Night Music, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. At the villa of the Baron to see me at where I spent a somewhat infamous year At the villa of the Baron de Signac I had ladies in attendance Fire opal pendants Liaisons, what's happened to them? Liaisons, today Disgraceful What's become of them? Some of them hardly pay their shoddy way. 
What once was a rare champagne is now just an amiable hawk. What once was a villain at least is Dinks. What once was a gown with train is now just a simple little frock. What once was a sumptuous feast is figs. No, not even figs. Raisins. Ah, liaisons. Oh dear, now where was I? Where was I? Oh yes. At the palace of the Duke of Ferrara. Prematurely deaf, but a dear. At the palace of the Duke of Ferrara, I acquired some position, plus a tiny tissue. <laughs> liaisons, what's happened to them? Liaisons today. To see them, indiscriminate women at me more than I can say the lack of taste that they display where is style where is skill where is forethought where's discretion of the heart where's passion in the art where's craft with a smile and a But with more thought I acquired a chateau Extravagantly overstuffed Too many people muddle sex with mere desire And when emotion intervenes The next descend It should on no account perplex Or worse inspire It's but a pleasurable means
More recently, 2012 saw Lansbury star in the Broadway revival of Gore Vidal's The Best Man, alongside James Earl Jones, John LaRoquette, Candace Bergen and Eric McCormack. Together with James Earl Jones, Lansbury then went on to star in an Australian tour of Driving Miss Daisy, beginning at the Queensland Performing Arts Centre in Brisbane on February 5, 2013. On November 16, 2013, Lansbury was honoured by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences with an honorary award for her lifetime achievement. In 2014, she reprised her 2009 Tony-winning Broadway performance as Madame Arcati in Blythe Spirit in London's West End, her first London stage appearance in nearly 40 years, followed by a North American tour from December 2014 to March 2015. In April of this year, in her 90th year, she received an Olivier Award as Best Supporting Actress for her performance as Madame Arcati. You've used a phrase that comes up a lot in interviews with you, in conversations you've had, or what people say about you, which is character actress. Now, many people, uh, certainly people who are interested in theater, think of you as one of the great leading ladies of the stage. Um, you always refer to yourself as a character actress and did even from early on in, in your film work and your earliest work on stage. So I'm wondering if you could say how a character actress or actor differs from a star, a leading actor, because it's a distinction that seems to come up so often. Well, I think that great leading ladies generally have great faith in their appearance, in their own personality, and this is what they sell. This is what they use as the foundation for every leading lady character that they play. They very seldom differ. They, they very seldom reveal particularly interesting attributes or characteristics. They always maintain, shall we say, a very cool attitude. And that's very confining, what I've just said, because, of course, some great leading ladies were great comedians, particularly, I'm thinking, in motion pictures, not so much in the theater. I think theater leading ladies, generally speaking, would always roughly play the same, the same part, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in movies, not so much. Certainly Davis, uh, Betty Davis, uh, we think of a, a Meryl Streep, great, great Meryl Streep, who is capable of being a great leading lady and also every character you ever thought of under the sun. And uh, then you have Kate Hepburn, but she was always Kate Hepburn. She was always the great leading lady. I was always talking to her like that. So you, you knew exactly what you were going to get, you know. Davis, no, she, she was a fantastic uh, character actress as far as I was concerned, plus being a great leading lady because so, she allowed herself to be, uh, to be dumbed down from a point of view of her looks. She wore terrible outfits sometimes. You know, she, she loved playing characters, she thought. But it was always Betty Davis. So the term character actress doesn't even relate to the scale of the role or the medium. But it seems like it's almost that a willingness to be transformational. I think you've hit it right on the nose there. I think that's what I'm more comfortable 
not playing myself. I've always thought of myself as a particularly kind of cabbage-like person. Uh, I'm, you, you know, I... I, I cabbage-like? Yes, yes. I've said that about myself for years and years and years. You know, even when I was quite young, <laughs> it was funny. But if I could hide myself in a whole set of clothes, looks, sounds, and everything under the sun, then I became alive because mm. that's what I could do. It begs the inevitable question then. Is there a role you have ever played, stage, film, television, that you would say is closest to Angela Lansbury? be awfully hard to find that role. Hmm. I mean, everybody says, well, Mame was your role. That was your great role, wasn't it? I wasn't playing Mame. I was playing Ina Clare. Hmm. So, you know, I, uh, there was always somebody else. And uh, because I've never had the opportunity, you could say, and maybe that's a bit of a thorn in my side, that I never have had the opportunity to play the leading lady. Hmm. I really haven't, if you think about it. Just go back over everything I've ever done, and uh, that person doesn't exist. Lansbury there in a 2011 interview for the American Theatre Wing, conducted by John Van Susten and Howard Sherman. There have been many surprises in Lansbury's life, but perhaps the biggest of all is that she has remained current. It surprises me that I didn't get left behind, she says. I've always managed to keep up. In the process of keeping busy, I've always stayed relevant, she noted, and that is a surprise to me. Here is Lansbury in a 2014 interview with Mark Lawson for BBC Radio 4's Front Row Daily. There aren't many professions except perhaps the papacy in which you can be at the top of your game in your 80s. I mean, it is something remarkable about theatre, that. It's remarkable about theatre, but it's also remarkable about life in, in our time. And people are working to far, far later years than they did earlier. They don't stop at 65 as we used to. I do it because I love working, and uh, I'm far better when I'm active and doing what I know how to do. Um, I suppose the question uh, for everyone as we get older is, is stamina. Have you had to make concessions in your more recent roles? Never. Never. Wouldn't think of it. So even between eight performances a week, it's a big, um, it, it's a big commitment, that. But, um, but in terms of, like, sleeping in the afternoon or anything, or have you had to change anything? I do take a nap in the afternoon. But let me put it this way. If I'm working in the theatre, that's all I do. That's all I do. Uh, everything is pointed towards 8 o'clock curtain, 7 o'clock curtain, whichever, and that entire day from the time I get up in the morning is actually devoted to preparing for that. And uh, I think to, to maintain a career, that's about what you have to be prepared to do. Lansbury once said, Acting is really understanding other human beings and trusting humanity. When you have learnt this, the audience will get any message you want to send them. And when you feel that message has been received, it's a heavenly sensation. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. But do join me again next Friday here on Fine Music Radio at 8pm for a program on a stage and screen icon that is practically perfect in every way, the legendary Julie Andrews. Before I say goodbye, however, a reminder that you can listen again to tonight's show or earlier programs in the Great Interpreters Goes Broadway series 
on my website on and off the record www.onandofftherecord.com that's www.onandofftherecord.com you can also subscribe to my on and off the record podcast series on iTunes where you'll find many of my previous programs for your listening pleasure Playing us out tonight is Angela Lansbury singing Send in the Clowns from Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music. From me, Adrian Fuchs, till next week, have a wonderful weekend. Good night. Isn't it rich? Next year